New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. It's been said that the way we think creates society. In looking at our social structures, we see fragmentation, isolation, and divisiveness. Is this a reflection on the style of thinking we primarily use, such as rational, abstract thinking? Is there a way to cure our current planetary challenges with a different kind of thinking? Our guest today says we can return to our original thinking, which resonates with the pulse of nature. It's his experience that there is no difference between the heart of nature and your own heart. Today we'll be exploring the origin of thought and what our guest, Glenn Aparicio Perry, reveals about original thinking. Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry is an educator, international speaker, entrepreneur, and visionary whose lifelong passion is to reform thinking and education into a coherent, cohesive whole. He's a founder and past president of the SEED Institute and is currently the president of the think tank, The Circle for Original Thinking. Perry organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences from 1999 to 2011. These conferences brought together indigenous native elders and Western scientists in dialogue and were moderated by Leroy Littlebear. Perry is an avid outdoorsman and makes his home in the foothills of the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque, New Mexico with his wife, dog, and cat. He's the author of Original Thinking, a Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. Join us for the next hour as we explore the living roots of wisdom with our guest, Glenn Aparicio Perry. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Glenn, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. It's just our honor and pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming. I'd like to begin. I know that in, you did this conference for like about 10 years every year. It was an annual thing. And, and I know one of the scientists that you had on was David Bohm, who we had the privilege and pleasure of having many New Dimensions conversations with. Uh, so I'd love to ask you, how did these conferences inspire you? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, that's one of the big inspirations for the book, 
David Bohm was involved in the first conference that uh, he was approached by Leroy Littlebear and David Pete, who was a junior colleague of Bohm's and, and the eventual author of Blackfoot Physics, which he wrote after his experiences with dialogue um, moderated by Leroy Littlebear. This conference was monumental. Exactly 500 years after Columbus had come to this continent, we had a meeting of the minds with native elders and Western scientists on equal footing and also linguists. So my connection to that that dialogue was through uh, the late Dan Moonhawk Alford, who was here from the Bay Area, used to live in Hayward, California. And he was a consciousness linguist. He described himself as standing at the lonely intersection of language, quantum, physics, consciousness, and Native America. And indeed, for many, that was a lonely intersection. But that was the – I took a course from him at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the winter of 1983. And when we started that course, um, he asked us all to – take a diary. And I thought, whoa, that's kind of confident of him. Why does he want us to do a diary? We're just taking a class. He goes, but he knew that this course was going to change our lives. And indeed it did. I've never been the same. And Moonhawk became lifelong friends with me. And also his teaching assistant, who was 25 years old at the time, Matthew Bronson, who now lives in Sebastopol, uh, Matthew was the teaching assistant. He was this wild and crazy guy who, you know, hung out in Brazil with shamans and was like, you know, had a channel and he was, he was incredible. Uh, and Moonhawk was the most laid back guy you could ever imagine, but somehow they had beautiful synergy and the class was just a delight. Well, in the, these conferences, you, you describe them as having dialogue and um, that's a kind of participatory way of being together rather than the way we normally are is we debate. We, we come together and debate. So, so say, say something about the kind of dialogue that took place. That's true. So, were were so, people really talking at each other or uh, were they really uh, going deep and, uh, and hearing? And, and Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So— just to continue to get, I, I do want to answer just what you asked, but then so Moonhawk was my entree to when later he was invited by his mentor, Sagyes Youngblood Henderson, to participate in this historic dialogue. Then Moonhawk and I cooked up after I started the Seed Institute in 1996. A couple of years after that, we cooked up the idea of bringing the dialogues to Albuquerque. And then we did that for 13 years. And those dialogues were absolutely amazing. Some people, like Joseph Rael or Beautiful Painted Arrow, would see thought forms moving through the room. The whole idea in a Bohmium dialogue, but also what we were really doing was a hybrid of Bohm's dialogue and native or Plains Indian talking circle. They both have some similarities. There's no agenda, no expectation of a result. We have an opening to the east in Plains Indian talking circle to allow spirit to to come through. And the purpose is to listen for understanding, not to ready a reply. So just that alone, not that many people are listened to well in life just to have the experience of people listening deeply, that 
catapult you into a different form of consciousness. It's a slower form of consciousness. It slows you down, you know, and and it gets you to a deeper level. And it really is, I mean, I think David Bohm in his heart of hearts understood this, but even more so, I would say, under, under Leroy Littlebear, we understood the idea that nature was speaking through us. We would think about it as the concept speaking through us. And we also... I'm sure you've probably interviewed Charles Tart over the years or something, you know. So he he made famous the idea, concept of state-to-state -state consciousness. That's what would happen in this dialogue circle. Each year, we would basically pick up from where we left off the year before. So by the fifth year, we completely dispensed with introductions. <laughs> Because Lovely. what's really this is about is the concept speaking through people. It doesn't really matter what your CV is or even if you're native or non-native. At the end, the concept just spoke through and we became like one mind. And, you know, when I first started it at Seed, I, I directed a graphic illustrator to create an image of this, and it was a Native American speaking to a Western physicist across the Great Divide, the Rio Grande mm -hmm. Gorge in New Mexico. Um, but by the third or fourth year, I said, no, this isn't working anymore. We don't need this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we need a different graphic, which is about a, a bunch of people coming to one mind. And so we symbolize that with, with heads in a circle, but... Of course, the mind is more than the head, too. It really is about the heart. You you mentioned um, that it, it's a slower form of communicating and, di and being together. It certainly is. And in our Western way, yeah. <laughs> is is very different. We're rational. We were goal-oriented. We're quick. We just go. In, in fact, I, I know that this is one of the objections many Europeans have about Americans. We just kind of go boom, 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 boom. We're just wanting to get there fast, get there fast. And this is like, ooh, at first to get used to that, it's excruciating to slow ourselves down, wouldn't you say? Mm. Yes, I would, you know, and I, I grew up in New York. I mean, I grew up where, where conversation was a ping pong match. You know, the faster you could, you know, bat the ball back and forth was the idea. And that's, you know, that's, that can be uh, stimulating, but it doesn't take you very deep. Exactly, exactly. So let's just talk about the origin of thought and the difference between the way Western thought is going on, which is like rational, abstract thinking, as I mentioned in the intro, to this other kind of thought. So can you talk about the difference? Mm. I would love to. Well, first of all, the, the origin of thinking, the very word is thanking. So um, in about seven languages that I investigated, including English, also uh, French, Dutch, Frisian, uh, you know, there's, that is, there's a relationship between thinking and thanking or giving thanks. So in English, it comes from the Proto-Germanic pankas, which is related to another Proto-Germanic word, tang, which means feeling. So at the origin of thinking was a form of interconnected consciousness, which I would say would be most likely what we would call today prayer. So thinking was connecting us with nature. It was a blessing. It was understood that, that our thoughts connected us. And today, 
it's very different. <laughs> our thoughts, our thoughts tend to take us away from nature. So, so why was the origin of thinking thanking? I mean, it's just a very, very different way of of being in the world. Um, and so, do you have an that, answer to that? Why? Oh, yeah. oh well, goody! Well, well I, I think us. so, and I think that we can come back to that too. You know, the answer is is it's a it's a long surreptitious journey. You know, in which we began to look forward in our consciousness, and and, and we 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 moved away from a from a consciousness of blessing to one of scarcity. And we began to plot how we could improve our our lot on the earth. And uh, we looked toward the future as something better. And I, I focus in the book a lot on the advent of linear perspective in art. And as you know, the consciousness is reflected in art and science very much in at the same time. You know, so what shifted in art affected the way we did science. For the ancient Greeks, we used to think that the that the past was ahead of us because it had already manifested where we had eyes to see. The future was behind us or enveloping us from behind, a little like Carlos Castaneda talks about <laughs> death stalking you from behind. But once we had linear perspective come in, then the future was ahead of us, and right there we made a determination that if the future was ahead of us, we were going to affect it. I'm here with Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, originalthinking.us, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. Glenn, I want to go back to something that you said previously. You were talking about how the Greeks were looking at the past as being ahead of them and the future being behind them. I'd love for you to unpack that a bit. Okay. Well, 
For the ancient Greeks, they would have considered it hubris to predict or control the future. They understood the future to be unrevealed, something that was coming up and enveloping them from behind, not in a little literal linear straight line. It was just all behind them. What they could see, what they had eyes to see, had already manifest. So in that sense, it was the past. Um, and uh, it's very important to realize that we do something very slippery in modern times where we try to justify our modern worldview by revisioning how the ancient Greeks really were. We make them into far more rational critters than they were. They were immersed in a sensuous universe. They understood all of creation as a, you know, as um I think their their word for it was a gasp. You know, they it was it was this awesome thing that they could take in. Look at the word rational. It really comes from ratio or a relationship between things. So for the ancient Greeks, this was about divine proportion, the sacred ratio, the golden mean. So they were very interested in how things went together, you know, and they wanted to do that for purposes of harmony. Um, and this is totally the opposite of what rational thought has become today, where it's a fragmented, degraded form of rationality, which is no longer connected to a sensuous living universe. I believe rational thought is a beautiful thing, just like the ancient Greeks did. They thought of rational thought as the pinnacle of thinking, but they also thought of it as the most beautiful form of thought yet to arise. So rational thought has to arise after we first receive from nature, literally bubbles up through our feet and then into our gut, then in our heart, our heartfelt yearnings, our intuitions, those things, if they're grounded in a living universe, when rational thought then arises, it will be an eloquent, beautiful overview. But if you skip to rational thought too quickly, or if we're just living in our heads, then we have a problem. And that is a lot of what's going on in modern world. So when you talk about first the, the thought bubbles up yeah. through our bodies, our feet, and then into our gut and everything, I would love for you to share with us a story that might illustrate this. And this was something that y you went through as you were asked to tend a fire at mm. a ceremony once. Can you tell that story? I think it might illustrate some of this. Sure, sure. Well, that was the first time. I ever went to the sacred grounds of the Canyoncito Band of Navajo, uh, Leon Secatero, or Grandfather Leon Secatero, as I prefer to refer to him in the honorific, he invited me there. Um, and I, he had invited me for a number of years, but when I finally agreed to do it, I came to my census. <laughs> Just getting there was a journey. You know, if if you went from the reservation north about 25 miles, you could get there by horseback or walking, but there's there were no roads, so we would go south 
Then we would go east about 30 miles, north about 30 miles, west about 50 miles, and then back south over all dirt roads uh, to arrive there four and a half hours later. Um, so that was a complete journey. By the time I arrived there, I already felt fulfilled. Then we took our place in a beautiful area that was actually surrounded by eight buttes. Uh, I actually talked to Orlando Secretary Leon's son and confirmed with him that those are the original warriors that protect the site. You know, and uh, um, we all meet in a in a in a hogan. We say, but it's not a building hogan. It's just a camp site, and we were telling stories by the fire late into the night. Various people were tending the fire and. Toward the end of the evening, they asked me to tend the ceremonial fire. That's when I learned how to tend a ceremonial fire for the first time. I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I didn't know that you treat the fire as a living being, that we offer the fire sage, we offer the fire tobacco. If the fire's tired, we might offer it coffee. If it's hungry, we might offer it food. And you build a relationship with the living fire. It's not just putting on wood. So... But then late night came, everybody went to sleep, and I went back to my tent to go to sleep too. Um, I left that fire untended. And so at three in the morning, I heard the voice of Grandfather Leon in my ear, and he had the softest, most mellifluous voice you could ever imagine. And he just said, Glenn, get up and tend the fire. And we were sleeping out there. It was very, very cold. It's in their New Year's ceremony. I had all my clothes on, so all I had to do was put on my shoes. I got up, got out of my tent, and I proceeded to fall, immediately fall over. And that's because I was literally floored by the stars. The canopy of stars was amazing. Then I walked toward the fire. I didn't use a flashlight. I never do. I don't like flashlights. Actually, there's plenty of lights in the sky. And... And so I walked toward the fire. When I arrived at that fire, Justine, the fire was indeed all the way down. It needed to be built back up. So I built the fire up into a roaring blaze. Then I went back to the tent and went to sleep again, actually. Uh, and then I was awakened uh, probably about an hour and a half later, two hours before dawn, by uh, the coyote of the camp, Leland, who, 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 who just yells out, and I'm warning you now, you know, coffee, coffee, you're burning daylight. So this is two hours before sunrise. So we, then we go to, to the camp fire. The medicine men form a circle around the fire and sing the sacred songs that welcome in the sun. The warriors have been on the hillside all night long overlooking the camp. The women are preparing some coffee, actually, but, you know. Um, and then when that sun arose for the first time in my life, I understood that the sun that's rising in the sky is very immediately related to the sun in my tantia, my gut, you know, which is related to the campfire fire, the campfire and the lights in the sky. It's all the sun. Um, and But here's the thing. Then I saw a grandfather, Leon Secatero, coming back into camp. He, had, he wasn't there to whisper in my ear. He had gone away because he had received a message 
Not a cell phone message or a text message, because they don't have that there. But he had received a message that somebody was lost. And then he had to find out where they were lost. He had to do that with his mind, too. But he did that, found out they were lost, brought them back into camp. But I was still puzzled then. How did he know to tell me that the fire was dimming? How did he speak into my ear? So that morning, we went out on our sacred, you know, to visit sacred sites and give offerings of corn pollen. And so I took the opportunity to ask Grandfather Leon, Leon, how did you talk into my ear last night? But he didn't answer. Like many native elders, he didn't answer. He just pointed to the surroundings, and the message was very clear to me. Get out of your rational mind. Be here in the moment. And it was only later when Orlando Secretaro, Grandfather Leon's eldest son, said to me, Glenn, that wasn't Leon speaking in your ear. That was the fire speaking in your ear, disguising its voice as Leon so you would listen. <laughs> that's beautiful. And that's, that's really original thinking, and that's moved me to write this book. That that's it. That's it. And and I, I I remember reading um, you quote some research that experiments and research like David Vohm would be one who did that to, to that really showed how everything is really alive. Everything is vibrating. Everything, even when we look at a rock and we think, oh, that's in we call it in our Western mind inanimate. That this is there's this is living and this is not living, but that that line is not is pretty blurred, isn't it? I mean, well, I, I'm saying this because you just talked about the fire actually speaking to you, the fire as being alive. Mm-hmm. Well, I really feel strongly about the elements being alive. If there's one thing I would like to change, you know, in Western culture, it's to remember and restore the understanding that all the elements are alive and not just the constituents of life. Because as long as we believe that the elements are the constituents of life and we're and that they mix in some kind of primordial soup and then they catalyze this or that and then consciousness comes in later, as long as we believe that, we will continue to destroy the earth because if we don't believe the water is alive, then we destroy it. But Justine, you know, if why is the air considered dead when the air is what keeps us alive? Why is the water considered dead when the water keeps us alive? When does it suddenly become living? You know, we're 70% water. You know, so obviously water is alive within us, you know. And so why on earth do we consider it dead outside of our body? It's because we, the ancients never thought like this. You know, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci understood very well that, you know, as all the ancients did, that the human beings were the microcosm of the macrocosm and that the planet operated a very similar way to the way human beings operate. I mean, we have, the, the planet has the rocks, which are like the bones of, the, of inside our, our system. The, the waters of the earth expand and contract just like our lungs do, the pool of blood in our lungs. Um, 
the planet operates very similarly to the way a human being operates. And it really is easy to observe this. But the only reason why we don't believe this is because we've distanced our consciousness. And when we distance our consciousness, we created abstract time. We created, we had to observe things to have them become animate. And if we didn't observe it, we assume it's inanimate. Hey, rocks move. Who says rocks don't move? How do you think the Rocky Mountains were created? Rocks move. They just move at a little bit different pace than we are accustomed to. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I, I know that you have said in in your writings that um, water is our closest relative. Mm. I, I love that. You know, as you said, we're 70% made up of water. So this is uh, an important idea that the healthy rivers and healthy flow mm. of water on the macro might match then our own health. Uh, and so I I think that's a good point. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Thinking. And Glenn, uh, as we're talking about water, I'm thinking about plants and how you reveal to us how we conspire together. You use that word <laughs> conspire together. I just love that. That really popped for me. So describe how we conspire together with plants. Yeah, well, I got that from Moonhawk, Dan Moonhawk Alfred, and he was very uh, he was very good with words, and he used to say that, that uh, telepathy with plants shouldn't surprise you because it's a garden-level variety of telepathy. <laughs> and what he really meant by that is that we're in a literal conspiracy with plants. And of course, that's true. The plants breathe out what we breathe in, and we breathe in what they, you know, we breathe out what they breathe in. You know, and the plants are not dependent on human beings only, but they are dependent upon mammals to, you know, to breathe out the carbon dioxide. And Plants, of course, are also closely related to us because they're water beings. They're largely composed of water. So it shouldn't surprise us that plants affect our consciousness very profoundly. I mean, when people do things with plant medicine, it's a big step for modern Western thinking to imagine that the plants can affect our consciousness even when they're you know, they have evidence of tremendous effects. Certain kinds of mushrooms have. And whatnot. But you know what? All mushrooms have an effect on our consciousness. I once was in Berkeley, California with Grandfather Leon Secatero, and I, we went out to lunch. We went to a Chinese restaurant, and he asked very politely, can you bring me a plate of just mushrooms? 
And he did that because he knew that mushrooms had that grew in that interconnected way, and they were always would provide that that feeling of interconnected consciousness. That's beautiful, and yeah. I, I would love to talk a little bit about language and something else that you have written about is how our 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 brains, as we use them now, and that rational kind of thinking and and language, actually is is a filter it it filters out a lot so say something about the use of language mm. well i like to go with language i like to go to the land you know i had an experience when i was in costa rica and i was feeling the rushing of rivers and you know and i was feeling all the sounds of nature the monkeys calling the birds calling and uh, you know all of a sudden i became aware of course, linguistic diversity and biodiversity are interrelated because when you're in a place like the rainforest, you feel all kinds of language like emerging through your through your gut. You know, it's coming up. I felt pregnant with language. You know, um, I think that is the what Sagesh Youngblood Henderson calls the langscape is this this intersection of language, land, and thinking is really where it's at. You know, so the mistake that we make with examining human language is we think, and we're really using a tautology, we have decided in advance that human language is superior to any other language, and so we're, that's the level of our investigation. You know, we really don't look for signs of other critters being conscious because we're just looking at human language. And then we try to determine where that language is emerging in the brain. Um, well, yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, somebody, uh, we always make fun of indigenous peoples. That's the first time they ever see a TV set or something. They, they look inside the TV set because they think the TV set must have spirit. Well, we're doing the same thing with a brain. We're trying to look inside what is primarily receiver and we're trying to decide where is the origin of thought within the brain. I don't think it's in the brain at all, you know. Uh, but the brain is is a very interesting organ. It's very malleable. It does have a capacity to uh, grow, change. There's neuroplasticity. But the brain is not the origin of thought. The brain is a one area where we can receive thought. We also receive thought with our heart. See, if I go to an acupuncturist and they tell me that you're thinking too much, they mean that I should rest my heart, not my oh. brain. Mm -hmm. You know, and I also think we're definitely thinking with our guts. We need a gut math institute. We have a heart math institute. We need a <laughs> gut, gut math, math institute. I love that. <laughs> you know? I love that. Also, yeah. you know, yeah. in um, I've heard like in the in English language, mm -hmm. it's a noun based language. Oh, yes. And you know, and yeah. God becomes a noun, uh, yes. a thing. You know, and so we're naming things. But I've heard in indigenous yeah. cultures. They use yeah. language in a very different way. Yeah. Well, that's the that was the one of the origins of the concept of the language of spirit dialogues that that seed organized that I was blessed to organize and participate in um, because we had observed that Leroy Little Bear and David Bohm got together originally around that point. Remember, David Bohm tried to create 
his own mode of language. He called the Rio mode, R-H-E-O, from the Greek to flow, because he was frustrated that inside an atom, everything was process and relationship, and the English language was not up to describing it. You know, so, yeah, it's absolutely true that English is top-heavy with nouns, so that's why Bohm wanted to change it into verbs. Indigenous languages, uh, as Moonhawk would say about Sagesh, uh, quoting Sagesh, Sagesh would say we could go all day long without uttering a single noun. Now, I don't want your I don't want your listeners to think that one is necessarily better than the other. We need to we need to use both. So another story Moonhawk liked to tell is about Sagesh when he was leaving. Now, home. who is Sagesh? Sagesh was a young blood Henderson. He's head of the Native Law Center in Saskatoon. Um, he was one of Dan Moonhawk Alfred's mentors. He's still alive. Um, and so Sagesh was leaving on a trip. And he had all kinds of repairs he wanted to do with the house. So he gave very specific instructions for repairs for the roof and repairs for the porch and repairs for the window and such. And he left on his trip. Came back a few weeks later. Nothing was done. And so what his reaction was, he said, God damn it, we need some more nouns around here to pin things down. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. You know, um, Glenn, I would love for you, there's a story that you have in the book about the king and the map makers he, he uh-huh. that he commissioned to make a map of the territory and i i, I would love for you to tell that story okay. um because i think it really illustrates how in western culture we have given um given them the map as the for the real thing that's what we've given our attention to we think the map is really the real thing and I, I would love for you to to tell us a bit about that story. Okay. Well, this story I, f- I first heard from Dave Abram at the uh, 2004 Dialogues. And he talks about this king who, who uh, many years ago commissioned a map to to map out the whole kingdom. And he, got, he looked for the finest cartographers he could find, you know, and he brought them all together there and he wanted to map the whole realm. And they worked very hard on it. And they brought out this map a few weeks later that was six feet by six feet. And they brought it in the palace. They unveiled it in front of the king and the king was delighted. Except, he said, what about those mountains over there? How come they're not on the map? And they said, oh, your highness, those aren't mountains. Those are hills, you know. You know, look, look, we've got the Alps over here and the Pyrenees on the map. But those, those, aren't, those aren't mountains. And the king said, no, that's my favorite mountain range. <laughs> you have to put it on the map. I gaze at it every day. So they went back to the workshop. They gathered all the helpers. They got back to work. And months later, they brought this map. But now this is on a very different scale now. So they, this is now like 25 feet by 25 feet. And they kind of had to prop it up as best as they could and try to just get it into the room there. And they got the biggest room, and they, they still could barely fit it in. And, and they said happily, though, look, your highness, there's the golden mountains we've Put them on the map, just like you requested. And the king said, fantastic. But then he looked and he said, but where's that river, my favorite river? Where's that on the map? And they said, I don't see it on the map. We, we have to have that river. 
And they say, but your highness, that's not a river. That's just a creek. It dries up some of the time. And But the king is insistent. He says, no, I go to that river every day. I, I take the water and it blesses me, you know, and it's it's my favorite river. It has to be on the map. They say, okay, your highness. And then they, they go back and this time they're away not for a week or a month or it's like more than a year, you know, and they bring this gigantic map which 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 can not even fit inside at all the palace. They they lay it out as best as they could. But the king the king is still not satisfied. He says, Where is the home I was born in? Where's that on the map? And then they really, they throw their arms up and they go, how can you, how can we possibly put the home? You were born of humble origins, your highness. That's a little home. But he insists. And so they go back and they take a couple more years and they finally come back with a map that has the king's home on it. But actually, the map is now the size of the entire kingdom itself. So they lay the map, they've cleared the whole realm, and then they put the map over the entire realm. It covers everything now. And finally, the king is happy, everybody's happy, but a number of little time goes by and it starts to rain. And when it rains, oh, the map starts to, you know, kind of get crumpled up and a little bit of little bit of green moss starts poking its way through the map. And then and then uh, what are you and they first they don't know what it is. They say, What's this stuff? What's this dirt? What's this green <laughs> stuff? You know, and then and they have no idea. But, you know, that is that story is a beautiful story because it really is where we are now. We've covered the whole, our whole realm with so much abstract thinking, so totally and completely, that when the real world pokes up, we're surprised at what it is, you know. And that's kind of where we are now, except hopefully more and more of the real world will be rediscovered. So it's, it's like we've covered the world with this represent, mm-hmm. representational thinking that this represents this and this represents this, and we're not looking at directly. Yeah. There's a direct kind of relationship that seems to be missing, Yeah, would you say? Yes, that, I would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says with a smile, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Glenn Apricio Perry, and he is the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. And if, you, if you'd like to know how he spells his name, let me spell that for you. It's Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, Aparicio, A-P-A-R-I-C-I-O, Perry, P-A-R-R-Y, Glenn Aparicio Perry. If you'd like to know about more about his work, you can go to his website, originalthinking.us, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he is the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. Glenn, I know that education is really important to you, and you feel that we can do better. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you use a couple of quotes in your writings. Uh, one is uh, that I loved from Yuval Levin, and he says, The greatest enemy of wisdom is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. I think you start the book, this part of your book, with uh, with that quote, and it, I, I really loved it because um, we think about education as the gathering of knowledge or or that kind of thinking. So, what can you say about education and where we mm. might take it? Well, that's a good place to start. You know, the whole book was originally going to be called Original Education. But I found that, uh, you know, when I really got to the core of education, it's about learning how to think, not what to think. And so that evolved when I wanted to ground education in the living world. I ended up with a book called Original Thinking, you know, which is thinking, the origin of thinking coming from nature and moving through us. What you just spoke about with Yuval Levin and his quote about Knowledge, the illusion of knowledge also speaks to me very much because I admire folks like Socrates and Krishnamurti who understood that the real danger was in the accumulation of knowledge and thinking that we become erudite and working from that. What I'm really interested in is people having the ability to put aside what they think they know and make a direct, immediate, sensuous connection with a living universe because that's really where the knowledge is and it comes forward as you need it when it is appropriate, you know. And that's really what makes people wise when they're open to that knowledge coming forth at the appropriate time. So, you know, a wise person isn't about accumulating knowledge. So, Glenn, that that begs the idea to really educate ourselves is to learn how to ask better questions. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, so that's what the whole—my book, Original Think, is based on questions because I was so moved by dialogue— uh, I give credit to my wife, Tomoko. She's the one who suggested to me, you love dialogue. Why don't you construct the book around questions? And I did, you know, because the questions are, the ancient Greeks understood that the questions, the riddles, that takes you deeper. It's not about answering these things. Krishnamurti said, the only questions worth asking are the ones that are impossible to answer. So I ask, is it possible to come up with an original thought? What does it mean to be human? How is our thinking creating the world and what is now emerging? And I also asked, can education promote the renewal of original thinking? You know, and these questions unveil a lot of other things, you know, and it's been a, it's a beautiful journey. And as a writer, that takes some courage, I guess, in the sense that I didn't know what I would write. I didn't make an outline and I'm going to say, okay, this is the didactic argument I'm going to make. I ask the questions, I pray, and I allow what comes through to come through and then work with that. Yeah. In, in, in going to our educational system, 
and first of all, I want to appreciate yeah, sure. you for, for the way that, that you uh, did write this book uh, because it is a prayerful book. It is something. It's not, it's not like that outline. There's so much in it. It's, it's mm. deep and big and, and will elicit our own questions that will get us to start thinking Thank in a you. different way. Thank uh, you. And I, but t- talking about education, I'm thinking about, let's say, college. Mm. Right now, uh, that mostly those those courses, which we would call liberal arts or humanities, mm-hmm. they're they're really kind of poo pooed in in college in some way because how do you earn a living? And more and more students are being asked to follow uh, a course that's going to give them a job later on, possibly, you know. Uh, and uh, but that that goes into that what we've been talking about the whole hour of this segmented kind of thinking that yes. this little silo and and this little silo and this little silo rather than than understanding that pattern of connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know I go back to the elements sometimes. You know, light, air, water, and earth combine to create all of existence. You know, when you plant a seed, it needs that light, air, water, earth. When you do a tobacco ceremony, it needs the light, air, water, earth. It also has the extra element of fire. To cre- This is the sacred nature of the planet and the world that we live in. It also is the way we ought to educate, you know. And all of the answers are in nature. Children know this. Little children go out in nature. They learn enormously, you know, and there are some fantastic uh, childhood education programs like Waldorf education and Montessori education that understand that. And they later on teach rational thought, but only first when it's grounded in a living universe. I think what's really the weakness is when you get to higher levels of education, and, you know, some of it you can understand because people are accumulating massive student loan debt today. You exactly. know? So, they're, so they're worried about what kind of job they're going to get. And the universities are judged on how the students work in the world. But the greatest universities are still excelling in getting their students to learn how to think not what to think. Um, and all of education really ought to be about that on the higher education level, I feel. I mean, the real meaning of education comes from educare, which is to draw forth. You know, So it's a little bit like imagine a spider. You know, A spider spins her web from her belly. You know, we have the knowledge within us. A great teacher should facilitate it. You know, the real meaning of teacher comes from the from the word learn and lore or storyteller. It doesn't come from this idea of the dichotomy of this teacher is the knower and the student is the blank slate. It's not like that. It's really a magical, dynamic process. That's how education ought to be, in my view. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm I'm thinking like storytelling. I know that you have stated that storytelling is like that portal to that deep wisdom. And of course, it just attracts our attention immediately. Yeah. You know, uh, Glenn, I would love to have you share with us and guide us with a blessing if you would do that here uh, before we end this wonderful time together. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I invite the listener to imagine for a moment the original light of your own consciousness. As you breathe in, imagine that your breath is coming from far away from every point in the cosmos. There is no difference between the breath inside you and the breath outside you. It is one breath, and it is effortless. Give thanks for the gift of breath, and remember to thank the trees who who convert it in the form you need, because the trees are already thanking you in return. And thank the dark soil of Mother Earth, without which neither you or the trees could live. And thank the water that is within you, the trees and every other creature. Thank the water that is all over the earth and the oceans and the sky and the mountains, rivers and lakes. And next, go within and feel the light energy that is in you, emanating from your solar plexus. It is here where you are connected to your human birth mother. And it is here where you are connected to the entire cosmos. Feel the light within you that gives you life and energy. And give thanks to the closest star, our sun, for it keeps you alive. Now use your mind to travel to the place of the star people. Go up, up beyond the atmosphere and look back on the atmosphere of the earth. Notice the similarity between the way lightning flashes in the atmosphere and the way the neurons of your brain fire. Your brain is part of a larger brain. Give thanks for that. Now go farther out into space and see the perfectly formed orb of our planet Earth. How beautiful she is. Give thanks to her. Next, I invite you to continue your journey. Imagine traveling farther into space, past the sun, out into the galaxy. Expand your thought outward and continue your journey by using your mind. Go to the farthest star you can see. Travel through the entire galaxy to get there. Now, if you dare, go through the dark portal until you are outside the galaxy and turn toward the great expanse beyond the limitless cosmos. Now, look back at the Milky Way and see it from the outside in. See all the interconnected points of light throughout the galaxy. You have reached the origin of your consciousness, the vast emptiness that is the original seed of everything. Stay there for as long as you like. Do not think. Do not do anything. You can come back to this place any time you want. But for now... Return to Earth because you are about to have an original thought. Glenn, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. I've been here with Glenn Aparicio Perry, and he's the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, originalthinking.com. U.S., or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3555. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.